Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Uh, I'm, I'm Brian Ball, one of the co-teachers. Um, Jay is out tonight. He's teaching at the D, D6 conference, conference on families, and, and he's, he actually taught today, that, and that's after, what, six preaching services over the weekend? So pray for his endurance. Pray for, pray for him to uh, be focused. He teaches today, taught today, and I think he teaches on Friday. So, um, so I'm up here solo, so y'all be nice to me, right? <laughs> You know, this, this, this can go all sorts of ways, I suppose. Um, and just as, a, as part of our announcements, um, Bishwa and Ramala, Ramilla are in room 118. There are missionaries from the Transform Nepal, World Mission Partners from Transform Nepal. And uh, some of y'all know them, and they're doing a reception. And they're going to be there till 8. So hopefully once we finish up, if you guys want to go down and say hi to them, you're more than welcome to. Uh, wonderful, wonderful folks. Um, let's see what else. We're starting. Let's, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace, your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for your word. Thankful for its truth. Um, thankful for, for the ability to, to teach and to preach this uh, freely. And so open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us hear tonight, Father, and, and, and let us be changed. Don't let us be the same people that walked in, that walk out, because we've encountered your truth and we've encountered you um, so bless us tonight as we teach. It's in, the, it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Whew. Wasn't Easter wonderful? Holy cow. Holy cow, that was awesome. That was truly awesome. Um, yeah, t- tonight we're going to start a new section. We've, we've, uh, up until now, we've been doing the theology of God. Okay. And, and, and we've gone through different at his attributes, right, all kinds of things. And tonight we're starting kind of a whole new section for the next four weeks. And it's the theology of man. Okay, and this is going to be a little bit different. One, it's, it's not going to be quite as scripturally heavy. It's certainly, it, certainly grounded in scripture. But the Bible is about God. Don't know if you noticed that, right? And so, it, and that's our, where we get our understanding. But what we see is man in light of God. Right, is what we're going to see through Scripture now. Because what we, we see ourselves, particularly as Christians, in light of who God is, in light of his attributes. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Um, the other thing to kind of start to talk about is, and, and Driscoll does a pretty good job in his book, Doctrine, when he, talks, when he, when he goes into this, this section. I think it's called God Loves. And he talks about how, how and he, I think, starts with Augustine, and I'm not a, enough of a scholar to know whether that's true. But talks about when we look at, at, at our identity, when we look at who we are, that, that up until then it was really seen outside of ourselves. It was seen communally. It was seen, you know, and, and scripture obviously tells us our identity comes from God. But what Augustine started doing was having, having people look inside, right, to look at their, at their feelings, to look at what, and, and, and as we've watched kind of that progression philosophically and theologically and even into our churches, right, we're told to kind of look inside to see who you are. And that's not what God says. Right? God says, I tell you who you are. Right? I tell you who you are. Because a lot of times we get it confused with what we do. Right? Because the world will tell you what you do is who you are. Your existence defines your essence. Right? And we get tempted, I get tempted, maybe I'll don't. Right? To, to do that, to be defined by my job, right? to be defined by my education, to be defined by my, my social status, to be defined by my economic status. Right? And none of those things are how God defines us. 
right? Because we look up and we look out. Wendell Berry, because you know, we talk about kind of being the autonomous man, right? That we all want to be kind of, right, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and, right? And Wendell Berry says there's no such thing as an autonomous man. So there's only responsible and irresponsible dependence, right? Because we're dependent on one another, right? We're most of all dependent on the Lord, right? So we live lives of responsible or irresponsible dependence. And as we go through this, just kind of keep that rolling around in the back of your head as we, as we go through this, as we go through this. All right. And be nice to me on the questions. Another qualifier on this. All right. As we explore the doctrine right around the creation of man, we're going to look at why we were created, what, the perp- what our purpose in life is, and what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We should cover that in about three minutes. Right, those, those existential questions. One other thing is on, on this, there's kind of four questions that a worldview answers. And I want to set this out as a framework too. It's origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Let me say that again. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Uh, uh, Vodi Bakum uh, frames it pretty well in questions. says, who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And is there any hope? And over the next four weeks, we're going to answer those four questions. We're going to look at the first two tonight. And, and like we did with God, right, you're going to have some questions come up tonight that we're going to answer over the next three weeks. Okay, and, and I, so I, if I defer some of your questions to what we're going to teach in the next three weeks, that, that's why. I think next week we're doing, he made them male and female. And then I think I teach on sin. And for some reason, when I first came here, was put into, put into leadership in, in Brentwood, the main Brentwood campus, I somehow got donned the uh, authority of, in the church on sin. And I was kind of disturbed on how to exactly to take that. Um, and then we'll talk about redemption. So, y'all can pray for my children. All right. So we look at, we, let's, let's start off with using the term man, right, to describe all of humanity. Right, with all kinds of the language issues that we have now, one of the, one of the questions is, is that a biblical way right, to, to, look at, to look at that? And if we look over at Genesis 5, 1 and 2, that question's answered, right? Because Genesis 5, 1 and 2 uses man to refer to the entire human race, even in the presence of other gender distinct language. So Genesis 5, 1 and 2 said, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Right? So it is okay, or it's biblical, as a matter of fact, to, to use man to refer to as all of the human race. And the word translated man, of course, is Adam. Right? It's used in a proper name in several places. And let's look at a couple of those verses. We'll kind of roll through Genesis. So Genesis 3.17, and to Adam, right, which is that same word, he said, because you have listened to hear the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground before you, and in the pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Right on down to 3.21, and the Lord, made, and the Lord God made for Adam for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve. Right? Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew his wife again and bore a son. Um, in Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generation of Adam, right, that we looked at. And so it's also used, it's, it's used to describe all of humanity, it's also used as a proper name. And we also have places where it's used as a gender distinct from woman. 
And so we go back to Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, in the next verse, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my f- flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Uh, 3.8, we got, and you've got a list, right? 3.8, 3.9, 3.12, 3.20, right? And he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Um, so, so using the same term, right, in, in, in those cases is all biblical, right? Including man is designated the whole human race. And so it, it originated with God himself. So we can feel confident to refer to a, male, to a male human being and to the name of the human race generally with this term. And some argue that this is just an artifact of the, of the Hebrew language. But that's where Genesis 5-2 comes back. And it's using very specific Hebrew language to make those distinctions. Um, and also, this is not arguing that we always have to use duplicate biblical patterns of speech, right? We can speak in ways other than how the Bible talks, which is good news because that would make communicating fairly difficult, right? But it does say that this in, this in particular, right, is, is, a, is a legitimate means to, to use as we go through these discussions, that man, using man to describe the entire human race. That may or may not be a... a point for you, but that is a point that our culture, deal, culture deals with significantly. And so it's important for us as Christians to understand that that's a proper way to frame the discussion. Does that make sense? So that's why we need to, that's why you need to look at this, why we need to know this, because you and I are probably going, okay. But we need, but as we witness, as we talk to people through the Bible, we need to know where this is rooted, where this comes from. Is that good? All right. Why was man created? Right? God, we went through, remember we went through all the attributes of God? Talked about God's sufficiency. Right? God doesn't need us, praise be to God. Right? God is sufficient in and of himself. Right? God did not need to create man, yet he created us for his own glory. Right? That attribute of independence notes that passage, we have a bunch of passages back in that teaching um, that God does not need anything. Right? He is complete within himself. Um, creation was made for his glory and to bring him joy. Right? He has perfect love and fellowship among the members of the Trinity for eternity. And that's a couple of passages in John, right? John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The other good news is God, in, in that God created us for his glory, right? He speaks of us as his sons and daughters. We look over at Isaiah 43, 7, right? Everyone who is called by my name, who I, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, right? And we do all of our things to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God out of 1 Corinthians, right? And so we were created to glorify God. Right, that's, why he, that's why he brought us in here. Not because he needs us, not because he was lonely, right? It was because he, we were designed to glorify him. And so that's what we get into, right? Our purpose in life is glorifying God. And this is a very, Jay and I were actually talking about this tomorrow afternoon, this is a very Piper definition, right? And if you read a lot of Piper, you'd kind of under, you'll understand. It says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, 
that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and all the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. I don't know how many times I use manifold protections every day, right? Perfections. And so what that is, right, is that our life, what we do is centered around glorifying God. And by the way, you can do that under any circumstance, right? I was, uh, one of the things, I was a deacon thousands of years ago, and, and we do, we, our, their deacons do hospital visits. And so it was my week, and so I went and I visited this lady, and she was, she was probably going to die in the next 48 to 72 hours. And she had this stack of cards, and she was sitting there, and she'd pull down a card, and she'd write a name and write out a prayer, pull an envelope, address the envelope, take the card, put it in the envelope, and set it down. And that's what she did. The nurses said that's all she did. Okay, she got 72 hours to live. And all she did was glorify God right, by sending out prayers. That was, that was a turning point in me as a, in me as a Christian. That, that left a mark watching that lady do that. Because she knew, by the way, it wasn't because she didn't know. She believed the most important thing she could do was pray for people. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the most important thing you can do is pray for people? Because that glorifies God, right? When we obey him, we glorify him, right? When we obey him, we glorify him. Right? We are to enjoy God and take delight in him, in our relationship with him. Right? Jesus came to give us an abundant life, and we've read this a billion times. The thief has come only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? John 10, 10. Um, God's presence is the fullness of joy. She, she was there in God's presence, right? When she wrote those prayers, when she was doing that work, she was in the presence of God and bringing that to other people, right? And so we look at some, and that's just beautifully exclaimed in the Psalms, right? Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Uh, Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Um, Psalms 84, 10. For, your, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what, these were those verses that rolled through my head Sunday. Right, sitting there in that Easter service. These were the verses that rolled through my head. You know, th this is just a sample, right? Just a, just a, a, and we're still looking through a veil dimly, right? Because the, the scale is just is nothing. But that's what heaven's like, right? And isn't that awesome that God would give us a glimpse of that? Isn't that just awesome? Isn't that just awesome? Sorry. So the normal heart, heart, normal heart set of the Christian is rejoicing in the Lord and the life he gives us. Uh, Paul over in, Ro in Romans. Uh, where's Romans? There we go. Uh, Romans 5, 2, and 3. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, right? Endurance. Right, and endurance character, right? Isn't that a beautiful, 
that God takes even the things we persevere against and turns them to his glory. Right? Isn't that just awesome? Uh, Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. First uh, Thessalonians five sixteen through eighteen. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. you wonder what the will of God for you is? Let me read it again. Give thanks in all right? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 6, right? in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And 1, 8, right? though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Mm, that works. So practically, right, when we focus on him, our joy becomes inexpressible and filled with that heavenly glory. So one of the questions that we get is, is it narcissistic for God, for, for God to create us for his glory? Right? Is God a narcissist? Which is fantastic because we can get into the philosophy of having a moral framework outside of God, but that's yeah, probably beyond tonight. right? He certainly struck down those who, who sought their own glory. right? We remember... Uh, uh, Herod, right, over in, over in Acts 12, 2, 12, 22, and 23. And when the people were shouting, the voice of God, not a man, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was by, eaten by worms and breathed his last. Right? And the next, the next st- statement on that, right, was the, Lord's, was the word increased, right, and, and, in, and continued to increase. Um, but God deserves this glory, right? He created all things. He alone is worthy of seeking glory, right? We are not. Your glory is weight. And what you watch, right, is when man takes glory for himself, right? When we watch these celebrities, when we watch these athletes, when we watch these politicians take glory for themselves, what does it do? It crushes them, right? They were never meant to hold that kind of weight. You and I, we're never meant to hold that kind of weight, right? Right. At best, it deforms them. Right. That's what I've. That's what I've kind of watched with Benjamin's cohort, right? In some of the schools that he's gone to, what you've watched is the weight of glory deform people, and eventually crush them. But that's not what right. But God is designed, and that's when we take God's glory. Right. God is designed to hold this. Right, it is right, not wrong, that he be glorified. We hear the, the elders singing right, in heaven, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your, name, by your will they existed and were created. Right, Paul over in, Roman, in Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right, amen. Right? And when we understand this, we will seek God's glory right, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where Mark 2, 12, 30 right, echoes the Shema. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? When everything we have is dedicated to God, is dedicated to serving Him. Right? That's, that's when we glorify Him, when we are obedient. Right? And we don't like that word very much. Anybody here like obey? Right? It's because we're rebellious, right? 
that God is glorified when we obey him. And that's a conscious choice to obey God. It's not something that happens by default. Right? We have to choose to obey him. Y'all still hanging? By the way, I continue to be impressed that y'all show up to do systematic theology. That is just an awesome thing. And the questions you asked are magnificent. As, as a teacher, and Jay and I talk about this, as a teacher, y'all are just a spectacular group. And we are very, very thankful to the Lord that we get to teach this. And it's particularly teach among you. It, it is truly a blessing to both of us. Anyway. All right. Created in the image of God. This should be simple. So let's take Grudem's definition. Right? Grudem defines the image of God as the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Okay, let's, let's read that again. Right? The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Um, we are created uniquely unlike the rest of creation. Right? Um, animals were all created according to their kind. Genesis 1.24 And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So animals were created according to their kinds. Right? We were created in the image and likeness of God. So Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So they were made in, 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 right, in, in their, according to their kinds, and we were made in the image and likeness of God. And so... Paul David Tripp uh, has, a, has a really, I thought was a really cool quote on this. It says, immediately after creating Adam and Eve, God talks to them. Right? Immediately after creating Adam and Eve, God talks to them. He did not do this with anything else he created. He simply rested and moved on. Why did God talk to them? God knew that even though Adam and Eve were perfect people living in perfect relationship with him, they could not figure out life on their own. They were created to be dependent. Remember we talked about in the beginning? They were created to be dependent. God had to explain who they were and what they were to do because, with their lives. They did not need this help because they were sinners. They needed this help because they were human. This is the first in instance of personal ministry in human history. The wonderful counselor comes to human beings and defines their identity purpose. Isn't that awesome? Right? We are created dependent. That's not a design flaw, speaking in engineering terms. Right? That's not a design flaw. That's a necessary and sufficient condition to be human. That we need each other. And that we need God. So when you're feeling like you need stuff, that was by design. You weren't supposed to do this alone. Right? Cool. All right, Erickson, he, he has got a book called Christian Theology, and he identifies three major views of the image of God that man has held throughout the history of the church. Uh, the substantive view. This views man, right, as some, views some particular quality of man, such as reason or spirituality, as the image of God in man. So that it, takes, it takes some quality we have and says that's the image of God in us. 
That's what, that's what this theory. Uh, people like Luther and Calvin, uh, the, many of the early church writers, that was kind of the theory they operated under, what was, was that view. Uh, the second view is the relational view. It holds that the image of God has to do with our interpersonal relationships. Uh, Brunner and, and Barth, and Barth actually said, you know, he, he saw the image of God specifically in our being created as male and female. Um, but, it, but we were designed in relationship, and that design in relationship, right, is the image and likeness of God. There's a third view. It's the functional view. That holds that the image of God has to do with a function we carry out, usually the exercise of dominion over creation, right? He told us in Genesis we had dominion over all this stuff. And so as God has dominion, so we have dominion. So that's our image and likeness of God. Um, probably best to go, to go look at what the true Hebrew words actually mean. Uh, and, the, and the Hebrew word for uh, image is teslim, and for likeness is demut. And I'm probably slaughtering those because I don't speak Hebrew. And they're both from Genesis 126. Both words mean something similar, right? But they're not identical. Both words mean something similar. Uh, image is used to mean, is used in the meaning that you represent something, right? And that's if you go back to our definition, right? It said God means that man is like God and represents God. And so from, from image, we get the representation. And then from likeness, we get that implies that, that there's a similarity in certain regards. And they had very clear meanings to their Hebrew readers, that man was like God and would represent him. What we get into controversies about is when we try to get that to become really specific, right? Because the Bible doesn't get really specific about that, right? Um, I really do like that general definition from Grudem. I, th I, think that's, I think that's a very helpful because what we read in the Bible is how does that play out in God's interaction with man, right? That's what the, that's what the whole Bible is, a, is, is about God and then how we reflect his image and likeness and don't, right, in certain places, right? When we reflect the image of God, things, are, things go good. Where we don't reflect the image of God as, as, as mankind, things don't go well, right? Things don't go well. Um, if, scripture, if scripture went on right, to, to kind of define these terms, it'd be an endless list, right? Um, to fully understand the meaning of the image of God would require a full understanding of God. Anybody got that? Nope. Right? So there's not going to be a list. And the other thing, I, and, and, so he, and so Groom says, therefore, all three of these views has, have, have some truth in them, and we need not choose between them. Um, and again, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I, I like lists and plans, right? Because that's good engineering, stuff you can test, right? And so it would be very convenient if God had put the Bible in some kind of engineering form, right? That, that would have helped me out a lot, right? Lists, plans, right? But that's not what he did because that can't, that doesn't express God the way he is to be expressed. And when we get frustrated with the Bible, and I get frustrated with the Bible from time to time, probably like you, that's because we're not understanding what God has for us, right? That's because we are limited and finite creatures thinking about an infinite and ultimate and beautiful and magnificent God, right? And that's our shortcomings, not his, not his faults. Does that make sense? And so we, we really need to, which goes back, and I keep going back, that echo of dependence, Kept, kept bouncing through my soul as I, kept, as I kept running through this. We are so dependent on him, right? even for our foundational understanding of who he is, even for our foundational understanding of who we are. Right? It's all dependent on him.
All dependent on him. I love the, uh, the image and likenesses. In, in Genesis 5, 3 gives us a really, a really good example of that, right? When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, right? And so Seth was not identical to Adam, right? But he was like him in many ways. It doesn't specify all the ways Seth and Adam were alike or not alike, right? And Seth, and Seth has many ways like Adam. And so we have many ways being like God. Benjamin and Micah, my two sons, right? Are they like me? Yeah. There's some ways I wish they weren't like me, right? They picked up some of the, you know, I wish they kind of, could have kind of gotten the godly and holy aspects and kind of left the rest of the stuff off. But that's not how it works, right? Are they identical to me? No. Can I make a list? I mean, some of y'all know them pretty well. Can I make a list of how we're alike and different? Probably not, right? There's, there's so many subtleties, so many ways. But they are made in my image and likeness, right? the Bible says. They are made in my image and likeness. And so God gave us an analogy. When we look at our kids, when we look at our parents, right, we have a way. We have an, he gave us an analogy to see what image and likeness are like. Isn't that gracious? Isn't that gracious? I think that's awesome. All right, the fall, right? God's image is distorted but not lost. So can man still carry God's image after the fall? The answer is yes, right? And it was answered early in Genesis 9, 6. Um, the Bible says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be, blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And that's post-fall, Right? And James 3, 9, with it we, right, we talked about the tongue, right, you can't control the tongue. It says, with it we bless the, our Lord Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So even those, right, everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, whether you, whether you follow Christ or not, right, that, that we are made in the likeness of God. But we are obviously not like God in a lot of ways, right? Our moral purity, being sinful, is certainly not like God, right? Our, our intellect is corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. Our speech is no longer glorifies God. Our relationships are often governed by selfishness rather than love. Um, Ecclesiastics 7.29 says, See, this I found, that God made, made, made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God, God made us, right, in the garden, upright. And as Benjamin said, there's one way to stand, right, in the truth of God, and a billion ways to fall, right? And those are our schemes. We try to find shortcuts. We try to find things for our comfort, right? But we, and those are the ways, those are the ways we're not like God, right? And so, and so to understand what the meaning of God is, we can't just observe human beings as they currently are, but have to take these biblical indications Right, of the nature of God and Adam and Eve before, when it was all very good. Right? Remember God saying that in Genesis uh, 133, and he, God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And so we've got to take the image and likeness, right, considering those things. And then, of course, the true image of man was also seen in the earthly life of Christ. Right? The full measure of excellence of human life will not be seen again until his return. Right? As we are sanctified, we're becoming more like his image, but we won't get there until he comes back. Sanctification allows us to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And that's Colossians 3.10. And we have put, off the, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Right? We gain understanding of God and his truth. Um, that's over in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right? For this comes to the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen? That's awesome. That is awesome. And so the goal, of course, is to be conformed into Christ's likeness. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? We are, we are predestined, right? When he comes back and is glorified, we will, we will fully render the image of God. Right? Praise God. That's just awesome. That's awesome. Um, so just as we've been like Adam in death and sin, we believe that we will be like Christ, right? Morally pure and never subject to death again. Uh, and that's 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we've been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Right? The full, and, uh, yeah, the full measure will never be seen in Adam or the life we have now. Um, because Christ, right, he is the image of the invisible God. And that's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And he is the image of the invisible God, 1 Corinthians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we should rejoice, right, that that's, that's what our destiny is. Right, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that when he appears, we'll be like him. And that's 1 John, which we're getting ready to start a sermon series. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he shall be, see him as he is. Right? And so and Driscoll put, Driscoll, this is a quote out, out of Doctrine, and I like this. Uh, says, therefore, we are not to reflect Adam, the culture, or even ourselves in this world, right? We're to, do, we're to reflect God's glory. Rather, God has bestowed on us the amazing ability and awesome responsibility to be his mirrors on the earth, reflecting his goodness and glory to all for his glory and our joy. All persons are, are God's image in a basic sense, but Christians image him more than non-Christians and mature Christians even more so. And, and one of the things to keep in mind, right, that, that reflecting God's glory is an intentional act. Is an intentional act, right? We must take up our cross and follow him, obeying his commands, making a conscious effort to keep his glory at the center of our attention. A.W. Tozer says that every day you get up, your cross is laying on the ground behind you. And you have to make a choice. Are you going to pick it up and start walking? Right? Take up your cross daily, the Lord says. And so the choice we have every day is, is Christ going to be the center of what we do? Are you going to pick up that cross and start walking? Right? And we have that choice every day. Every day. All right. So we've got some specific aspects that are in our likeness to God. Um, and, and this was kind of categorizations. They, they broke down, so there's moral aspects, right? That, and this is how we are more like God than the rest of creation. Um, in moral aspects, we are creatures who are morally accountable before God for our actions. And this is based on the fact that God requires us to imitate his own, his own moral purity, right? And we have an inner sense of right and wrong that sets us apart from the animal, who have little, if any, innate sense of morality or justice, but simply respond to the, from fear of punishment or hope of reward. 
And when we act according to God's moral standards, our likeness of God is reflected in behavior that is holy and righteous before him. So basically, we have, we have the ability to reflect God intellectually, right? And we're held morally responsible. We talked about the angels, right, also have a moral conscience, right? But they were not, not given redemption. We were given redemption. But there's these moral, these mental aspects that we have that the rest of creation doesn't have. That, that allows us to, to reflect God's image more completely. Um, mental aspects, right? We have not only physical bodies, but immaterial spirits. And therefore, we can act in ways that are significant in the immaterial spiritual realm of existence. So that means, right, that, that the spiritual life enables us to relate to God as persons, to pray and praise him and hear him speak to his, his words to us. We had cats for a long time. I never saw them getting up in the corner and pray, Right? But you think about that's a unique thing. Do you think about what a gift that is? Right, that's really the pinnacle of our worship service. We've talked about that, right? If we really believe prayer is what it is, right, the pinnacle of our worship service is us in direct communion with our Creator and Savior. Right, that's the pinnacle of worship. Right, and that's given to us. Given to us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Um, connected with the spiritual life is the fact that we have immortality. We will not cease to exist, but live forever. Right? Eternal life is not a length of time. Right? Because you can have eternal life right now. Right? What does that mean? Eternal life is not a length of time. It's a quality of life. Eternal life is a quality of life. A life lived with God. Right? A life lived obeying Christ. So eternal life is not that we're all going to, everybody's going to live forever. Right? Eternal life is life with God. It's a quality of life, and we have that now. Right? Those of us who know Christ, we have eternal life now. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. All right. Uh, we have the ability to reason and think logically and learn that sets us apart from the animal world, and surely that is part of bearing the image of God. Right? We have God's word given to us. That we can study, right? We can study together. We can learn more about God, learn more about our relationship to him, what we are to do, what we are not to do. Right? That's, that's pretty staggering. That's pretty staggering. Um, our use of complex, abstract language, set, language sets us apart from the animals. And while animals do have basic communication skills, there's nothing like the linguistic skills and communication skills that we've developed. Uh, my youngest son is a language savant. And so when I watch him kind of figure, you know, he just picks up languages kind of like water. And when I watch him do that, it's amazing the insights he, he can understand about the people because of the way they made their language. Again, being an engineer, never really thought about that. I barely speak English. I speak math. I, I hiss it like a modem. I hiss it 48K on the phone. Just, but, right, but he picks up at these languages, these complex ways of communicating. Right, are just are just beautiful, and they're God given. Um, another mental difference between us and the animals is we have an awareness of the distant future, even an inward sense that we will live beyond the time of our physical death, and a sense that gives many people a desire to attempt to be right with God before they die. Right, Ecclesiastes three eleven. Right, God has put eternity into man's heart. Right, again, never saw our cats pondering the afterlife, but we do. Right? God's given that to us. 
Our creation image God is also seen in, is seen in our human creativity in areas such as art, music, literature, scientific, and technic, technological inventiveness. It's amazing. I've gotten to work with some, some renowned scientists and some renowned artists, and it is truly a gift of God that they have. They, the, the people that discover new things in art, the people that discover new things in science, that is a God-given spark. That's, that's something different because they see things that nobody has seen in three, 4,000 years. My, my advisor solved a math problem that people have been working on for hundreds of years, and he just wrote down the answer. Then he had two graduate students work for 20 years to prove that he was right, even though everybody knew he was right, right? But God just gave him a gift. He was a Christian, but God gave him that gift. He gave him the solution to this hundreds of years old math problem. And he, was, he said, yeah, I was sitting in my office one day and I just wrote it down. People have been working on things and you just, you just write it down. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's things that God gives us. I mean, the area of emotions, our likeness, our likeness to God is to be seen in, large, in a large difference in degree to the complexity of emotions. Right? We certainly see animals have emotions, but there's a degree and a complexity right, to human emotion. I'm married. I have a deep understanding of this. Right? Amen. Amen. It's very complex. It's very complex. Um, I married a wonderful woman, but it's very complex. It's very complex. Um, and again, I speak math. All right. Relational aspects. Although animals no doubt have some sense of community with each other, the depth of interpersonal harmony experienced in human marriage in a human family when it functions according to God's principles and in a church when a community of believers is, is walking in fellowship with the Lord and with each other is much greater than interpersonal harmony exists in any animal. Right? In marriage, we reflect the nature of God and the fact that he has men and women. We have equality in importance but difference in roles from the time that God created us. Man is like God also in his relationship to the rest of creation. Man was given dominion over creation and responsibility to steward creation for God's glory. So when you look at proper, right, one of the things that, I, that has always kept me in awe is that the one place Genesis 1 and 2 still happens is when people are in proper relationship, right? If you and I are in proper relationship and we, we meet up and, and we talk, I walk away with more and you walk away with more. Amen, Right? If I give you $5, I don't have $5, right? It's a zero-sum game, but that's not the way it is. That's not the way God designed relationships. We all walked away from that Easter service with more, amen? Right? We all walked away with more, and nobody had to give anything up because that was just poured out by God from heaven above, right? And so proper relationship, that's unique to us as human beings, right? That, that creative process, that, that, that when we come together, there's more than when we were apart. Keeps going back to this dependence thing, right? Keeps going back to this dependence thing. All right, physical aspects, right? Our senses allow us to interact with and affect the world as Scripture uses these to explain God's interaction with the world. Right, so as, as, as we see Scripture, right, how God interacted with man through Scripture, how God interacts with us, right, through our prayers, through, through how he affects, we see, right, how, we, how he's reflected in that. Um, it's important to realize that if man is... That, that it is man in his entirety who is created in the image of God, not just his spirit or his mind. Right? There's a big right. That's where we're getting to this sexual, conf you know, gender confusion stuff. Is that my body and my spirit and mind are different things? 
right? They're different things. It's a, it's a variation on dualism. Nancy, we got one of the resources is Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Um, and that's a fantastic book to, to certainly have that conversation and start that conversation on. Um, Dr. Piercy spoke here, gosh, was it 18? It's when, whenever the book came out. Uh, she was here doing a conference, and she spoke here at Coffee House. And she was, she was wonderful, just wonderful, took Q&A. Uh, but that, that when, you, when you get into that dualism, she's got a fantastic, fantastic look at that in that book. Um, therefore, if we carefully point out that we are not saying that God has a physical body, right, we may say that our physical bodies in various ways reflect some of God's characters, uh, characters as well. And certainly the God-given physical ability to bear and raise children who are like us, right, is a reflection of God's ability to create human beings who are like him. Right, that's what we talked about, that we see in our parent-child relationships that likeness and image that he created us in. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? All right. So especially on these last several points, these differences between human beings and the rest of creation are not absolute differences, but differences in very, in very great degree. And finally, our appreciation of the, of the ways in which we are like God can be enhanced by the realization that, unlike the rest of God's creation, we have the ability to grow and become more like God throughout our lives. Right? Sanctification is grace. Right? And those of us who've walked as Christians for a while and have started to mature, right, you see that. Right? Because his grace becomes more obvious. Right. Our dependence becomes more obvious. Right? Covey says we go from what dependence to interdependence to independence to interdependence. Right? And I kind of find when you become a Christian, it's kind of the opposite. Right? You kind of think it's interdependence. Right? I did something, God did something. I, saved, I, I accepted him and he saved me, so that's pretty good. And then you figure you got it all. Once you've read enough Bible, been enough Bible studies, you got it all figured out. So you're independent. And then when you really look at things and you, and you mature, you realize we're fully dependent. There is nothing of me, and it's all I have. Right? Right? All right. Our dignity as bearers of God's image. And I really, really like this. Uh, it would be good for us to reflect on our likeness of God more often, right? It, 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 it probably amazes us when we realize the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of creation, and he made us. Yet we must remember that even though the, man, the manifestations of the image of God have been distorted and diminished because of sin, fallen and sinful man has the status of being in God's image. In addition, it's important to, em that, to emphasize that people of every racial and ethnic background are all in the image of God and thus worthy of respect and care. Right? And, and that's, that's some of the trouble that we as Christians have. And, and I love being in this country. And this is a, America is a wonderful place. I'm thankful we live here. But we did not always reflect that. Right? And we need to have an honest rendering of that. Right? That's part of the flaws. And that was flaws in Southern Baptist churches. And that was flaws in this country. Right? We did not always accept that all men and women were created in the image and likeness of God. Right? And that's a problem. Okay. Just being, just being sure we're real clear. All right. And this is, a, this is another, I think this is, 
This is Edward Welch. Isn't that one more quote, and we'll and we'll we'll get to some question stuff. We did this pretty quick. Uh, we shall see the when we see we see the effect of being made in God's image on our purpose. And instead of a hierarchy of needs to be filled, as modern psychology would tell us, Christian counselor Edward Welch describes how the biblical teaching of the image of God leads us in an entirely different direction by showing that we are not empty cups needing to be filled by God. Rather, we are broken mirrors that need to be put back together by God beginning with our regeneration and continuing every day in our sanctification so that we can better and better reflect God. Welch says that instead of a love cup, the image is more accurate than that of Moses literally reflecting the glory of God. The center of gravity in the universe is God and his glory holiness. Welch deconstructs the experience of feeling empty and thus deconstructs the erroneous notion that God exists to fill our cup of needs. He replaces that view with the biblical idea that we exist to mirror God. And let me do some clarity because Benjamin and I went round and round with this a couple days ago. I still, there's a, this is talking specifically about the image of God, and I agree with this. God is not here to fill your needs. You are here to reflect his glory. Amen? However, that cup picture that's in Jay's office that we put up on the screen of the Holy Spirit flowing down in the cup and it overflows and goes down, that's a fantastic image to look at how the Holy Spirit fills us. And in the overflow of God's grace, we minister, right? So that's a fantastic analogy. So hear this in the, does it make sense hearing this in the specific case? We're talking about the image of God being a cup of needs that need to be filled. And that is an improper image, right? We are a mirror that reflects God's glory, right? The cup was beautiful when it's the Holy Spirit filling us and the overflow of the Holy Spirit we ministered of it. We good? Okay, just checking, just checking. All right, so what? All right, God created us for his glory and gives us a purpose in relationship to him. All right, unlike the rest of creation, we are made in the image and likeness of God, a unique characteristic of man, bestowing honor and responsibility on us in our special role in creation. This condition directly affects how we treat others as they too reflect the image of God. And God is the source of our dignity. And because he is the source, it cannot be taken away by action or circumstance. Right? And don't miss how big this is. Don't miss how big this is. Um, your purpose and your value come from God. And one of the things that was, that was pretty tough, you know, we, we, had, we put those card, response cards out uh, Easter some of those prayer requests, I've talked with a couple of our pastors, were devastating. Devastating. Uh, and there is so much pain. There is so much brokenness. There is so much confusion with identity. So much confusion with purpose. Right? So many people lost their jobs or their careers. So many people lost their families. So many people, right, there's all of this loss. And the problem is if you wrap your identity on that, it falls in on itself, right? But glory to glory, praise be to God, that's not where your identity comes from, right? That's not where your purpose comes from, right? We read, you want to know what the will of God is, right? It's to glorify him, right? And you have inherent worth and dignity, not because of anything in this world, but because God says so, Right? Because God says you are worthy. Because God says you are worth, worth his son dying. Right? And don't miss how critical that is. 
don't miss how unique that is. Right? That God so loved us that he sent his only son. So that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right? Amen? All right. Yeah, a buddy of mine said we had a professor that when he took his glasses off, when he had his glasses on, that was going to be on the test. When you take the glasses off, it wasn't going to be on the test. We're not having a test. I'm kind of nervous to look at the questions, but we're not having a test. All right. Yeah, I'm probably not going to go into the thousand years of Revelation. Uh, what was the math reference regarding Fermi's last theorem? Fantastic. Uh, your exhaust manifold is perfect. That's a high compliment for my Honda. Uh, how do we make things right with a Native American community? That's a fantastic question. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, these, there are a, when you get into the kind of the social aspects of redemption, right? Um, that, that's a very, we have to approach those things very humbly and very honestly, right? And I know there's all this, you know, Benjamin's in the middle of all that critical theory, right? He took two classes from the professors that literally came, you know, I guess espoused, whatever you want to call it, kind of created critical, critical legal theory and critical theory. And critical theory in and of itself, and we've talked about this, and I'm not going to go very deep in this tonight, but right, critical theory actually just says we need to look, look at our institutions and ask questions of them. And that's actually a reasonable thing to do. We do need to look at our institutions and ask questions of them. The problem is the outplay of some of that has ended up in, in some very worldly places, right, and very destructive places. By the way, inside and outside the church, right? We, and so what we've got to do is, is approach all of that very humbly and figure out how to heal people, right? Jesus came to save. And the other thing to remember is that the people's greatest need is not reparations for something they've wronged. They need Jesus, right? And I think we lose that in a lot of these conversations. We have, we have a lot. Of, we worked, both Rachel and I worked in the music industry. We have a lot of gay friends, a lot of LGBTQ, whatever friends. They don't need to not be gay. They don't need to not be LGBTQ. They need to believe in Jesus, right? And if they believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come in them, and the Holy Spirit will wear them out on their sin just like he wears me out on my sin. Anybody else there? All right, wears me out, absolutely wears me out. So I have full faith in his ability to do that, right? And so I think if we just keep remembering that people need Jesus, and live our life focused on glorifying God and reflecting Him as accurately as we can, the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. I know that's kind of an oversimplification, but I believe it's the truth. Right? And that's on whatever intellectual playing field you're on, that's on whatever social playing field you're on. People need Jesus. There's no other answer. There's no other way. And I think we keep getting distracted by a lot of stuff that keeps us from talking about Jesus. And sometimes even hampers our ability to talk about Jesus. And when you look at this, when you, when you look at what we just went through, and if you go back through it again, you know, we're so dependent on him. How, how, do you, how are you not humble? Right? How are you not humble? Sorry. Sorry.
How should being responsible stewards of creation impact our economic activity? Caring for the land and the animals. That's fantastic. Yeah, whoever questioned that, you need to read Wendell Berry. Um, and I'm not theologically going to do it with Mr. Berry, but, he's, but he, he, as a Christian, renders... It, a lot of what he writes about is what we lost going from an agrarian to an industrial society. And that actually, the, the quote I gave of that we are, that none of us are, are um, independent, but that we're all, you know, responsibly or irresponsibly dependent. That's from a, an essay in, I think it's called The Unsettling of America. Uh, it was written in 1967. And the essay that's from is The Body and the Earth. And it actually is a whole essay on that, on how our interdependence works. And, and what that means to responsibly steward what God has given us, right? Because dominion doesn't mean control for whatever we want to do with. It means stewarding it for God's purposes and glory, right? So that people see him more clearly. Does that make sense? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, our identity is, is, in, is in God, not who we are. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I would argue identity implicitly is who we are, and who we are is found in God, is the way I would state that. Um, cool. Wow, it's like 7.30. Y'all have never been out this early. You're probably confused. You want to do it again? I'm just, just kidding. Just don't, don't, don't throw anything. Um, this helpful? Good stuff. All right, let's let's pray and let's pray. And if y'all want to go see uh, Bishwai, he's, he's they're down in room one eighteen. All right, Father God, man, are we thankful? Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your glory. Thankful for your word. Thankful for your thank, thankful for how you made us. Uh, that that we're in your image and likeness, and that and that you give us both the awesome ability and responsibility uh, to glorify you, and to reflect you, and to bring you to a hurting and lost world. And so, Father, let nothing we do inhibit the gospel. Let nothing we say or nothing we, 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 we profess, Father, hinder your gospel from going forward. Uh, find us faithful stewards of your grace and let us be changed. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.